Thanks, Julie. Uh, great, to, uh, great to have this opportunity uh, to look at this part of God's Word this morning. Uh, it's pretty exciting. It's a, it's a little bit of a um, high wire act today. We're just going to look at the small section concerning the kings of Israel. That's a joke for anyone who knows their Bibles. Uh, that's, that's a vast tract of the Bible. That's uh, all of the prophets, major and minor. Uh, that's 1 and 2 Kings. That's 1 and 2 Chronicles. That's Samuel 1 and 2 and Judges. Uh, apart from that, uh, we should be fine. So look, we've got a lot to do this morning. I'm going to ask for God's help and your indulgence, and we're going to jump in and have a look at this really important part of God's Word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you for this time set aside in our week where we can turn our hearts towards you and your word. We pray, Father, that because you, the author, are present this morning by your Holy Spirit, that you might challenge and change us. And we ask this through the name of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus. Amen. All right. Well, leadership, it's uh, always a topic always a topic for us in this world. And I guess I want to start by asking you this morning, what do we want from our leaders? What do we want from our leaders? Moment of interaction. Incidentally, in our evening service, we have Q&A after the service. It's so fun, really great. If you want to come back for that later, you've got questions, come back this evening, it'll be good. But moment of interaction now, what do we want from our leaders? Good example. Want to be able to say, I'd like to be like that. That's good, someone else. Honesty, because if I'm listening to you talk, I want to know what you mean, what you say. Not core and non-core promises, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, good. Something else. Good policies. So not only can we trust what you're going to say, but you've actually thought about them and they're worth doing. Yeah, that's good. Someone else. Wisdom. It'd be really great if you actually had some internal ability to process these things. Yeah, that's great. One more. What do we want from our leaders? Leadership, yeah, point us somewhere. Um, take us somewhere that we weren't going before. Absolutely, that's, that's certainly what we want. But here's what I think we really want from our leaders. Perfection, don't we? I mean, I think all those things are reasonable. But they're mortal and they're flawed, aren't they? And so what we want to see is what would God have to say about leadership? And as we do that, we're going to continue our overview of the Bible. If you haven't seen this before, this is my pictorial overview of the Bible. Starts in Genesis with creation, goes all the way through to Revelation in new creation. Here's the Old Testament there. And today we're up to here. We've been working through this one image at a time through this term. We saw that Abraham had been told that he would be great, that he'd have a great nation and a great name. We saw that God saved those people, the people who were descended from Abraham, took them out from Egypt, gave them laws to live by. They failed to trust God, and so they wandered in the desert for 40 years. Then last week, Alec told us about how the people finally came into the promised land under Joshua. Now, this week on our timeline, we get to the small matter of the kings of Israel. But we get there by virtue of what happens next, what happens after Joshua. And the book of Judges tells us that. In Judges chapter 17, verse 6, you can see up there on the screen, in those days, Israel had no king and everyone did as they saw fit. See, without leadership, we wander. Without leadership, we wander. And the people of God were wandering even in the promised land. 
So let's see how Israel's leadership did. Let's see what we can learn from God's interaction with his people around this key question. Before we get started, we need to understand a little bit of the geography. So last week, Alec told us that they'd got into the promised land. Does anyone know how many tribes there were? Okay, it's a good answer, strong answer, 12 tribes. Uh, if we look at the land, you can see their allocations there. We need to know where the Jordan is. It runs north to south through the middle of uh, the, um, the country. And the people on the east here had had to help the rest of their brothers and sisters take the rest of the promised land. That's what we saw in Joshua. We need to know where Jerusalem is, key city uh, down there towards the south. We need to know that in the course of time, Israel will be split into two parts. And although there's one and two and three tribes down there, this southern part will get called Judah at some part in the history of Israel. And then in the north, it will be called Israel. Now, this is super confusing if you didn't know this. One nation called Israel, but after a particular point, and we're going to get there today, they get split in two and the northern part is called Israel and the southern part is called Judah. And we're going to see why and how that happened. So we're starting our analysis by looking at Joshua who had taken the promised land. And I want you to see that getting into the promised land was a good thing. In, in Judges chapter 2, we see what happened next after they came into the promised land. It said, after the generation of the faithful had died out, a new generation came up who didn't trust God. Okay, They didn't trust God. They hadn't heard what their ancestors had learnt, that faithful obedience leads to success. And so then we meet this thing called the Judges cycle. Have a listen, it's in Judges chapter 2. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of these raiders. So they'd been disobedient and now enemies were coming in. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been, been obedient to the Lord, uh, to the Lord's commands. Wherever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors. So I've got a little icon for each of these. That's actually a sword on its side there. That's a judge, right? And we've got a judge's cycle. We go from trusting God to falling away from God. Then we go to total apostasy. In other words, all sorts of idolatry. Then we go, oh, this is terrible. Horrible people have come and attacked our land. Let's cry out to God. And he raises up a judge for them. And then when the judge dies, they go back to being sad and sorry again and again. And if you understand this, you don't need to read the book of Judges because it's just the same thing again and again and again and again. Although it's a really cool book, so you should read it. Uh, but that's the judge's cycle. And it reminds us that God is merciful and his people are forgetful of his goodness. We see why these people came and attacked them. In Judges 2.20, it says, Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, Because this nation has violated the covenant I ordained for their ancestors and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it 
as their ancestors did. So here's a little uh, testing tube thing. That's what that uh, icon is, right? Here's what God says. I'm going to leave some of those enemies in your land and it will be the barometer to check whether you're being obedient. So the nations, uh, the nations will test Israel's obedience. Well, that went on for quite a long time. And we see that the people get sick of the judge's cycle. And we come to one particular judge, a man called Samuel, who's also a prophet. And if you uh, have a look at this, this was our reading, 1 Samuel chapter 8. And we'll pick it up in verses 5 to 9. The people are talking to Samuel. And this is how they open their discussion with him. They say, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. That's a nice way to start, isn't it? You're old. And your sons are hopeless. Now, here's why that was a problem. Samuel was leading the people because he was God's anointed judge. That's good, right? But what he was trying to do was pass on his power to his kids. His power and authority to his kids. Now, that's called nepotism in our land. It's not a good idea. Okay, If you're a king, that's fine. That's how power is passed down. But if you're a prophet, if you're a judge, then it's God's anointing that makes you the leader and you don't get to pass it on to your kids. So now the people are looking and they're saying, you were fine, Samuel, but you don't get to pass on power this way and your kids are terrible. They're lying, cheating, stealing, horrible. So we've got a new proposal. You're old and your sons are hopeless and now we want you to appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. But when they said, Give us a king to lead us. This displeased Samuel. I bet it did, anyway. So he prayed to the Lord, and the, and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. I want you to note this, guys. It is not you that they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king, as they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. So here's the thing. The reason you can have a judge in Israel is because there was a king in Israel. The king was God. God was their king. And so when they're saying, we don't want this situation anymore, give us a king, God knows exactly what's going on. We'll just rub out the king in heaven and give us one on earth. They decided to doubt and distrust God and replace him. And so God has been rejected as their king. Well, we see that God does acquiesce. He gives them a king and he raises up Saul to be their king. But he doesn't get off to an auspicious start. They do this thing where they call out uh, clans and then tribes and then families. And then they say, Saul, come forward. And then they look around and they can't find Saul. And they found him eventually. They ran and brought him out. Do you know where he was? He was hiding behind the supplies. This guy who's going to be the king of Israel is literally cowering behind the turnips somewhere. And so they ran and they brought him out, it says in 1 Samuel 10. And as he stood among the people, he was a head taller than any of the others. I would be disqualified. Samuel said to all the people, do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. Then the people shouted, oh, participation, spontaneous participation moment, church. See that we missed that. Then the people shouted, great, that's really good, fantastic. Now, wait, they've got a king, right? Amazing. Why do they want a king? They wanted to have a king so they could be like the nations. I want you to know that that's a tragedy. 
Because God had chosen his people to be different from the nations. They were supposed to be a light of his goodness and law to the whole world. And so when they said, we want to be like the other nations, they were actually disowning their identity as God's people. So how did this experiment turn out? Well, it starts out well. Um, Saul wins some battles and that sort of thing. But eventually, eventually tragedy strikes and Saul gets impatient. And the division that God had set up between the king and the priest and the prophet is blurred. And Samuel decides, you know what? I, uh, it's not Samuel. Uh, Saul decides, I'm waiting too long for this bloke to come and do his job. I'm going to do his job for him as king and priest. And so he offers a sacrifice. And then Samuel turns up. God says in 1 Samuel 15, I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry. And he cried out to the Lord all that night. You have to feel for Samuel. He lost the rule of his sons. He went with the new guy who'd been appointed. And now this man has fallen short too. So he's crying out for God. Israel's first king quickly fails. And that's why we have the upside down smile underneath the crown for his icon there. While Saul is still king, but has been disowned by God, There's another process taking place. God speaks to Samuel and he says, I'm going to pick my next king. And he sends him to to Jesse. And he gets to Jesse and he goes, bring your sons out before me. And God will tell me who's going to be your new king. And he goes, that's a pretty good looking young man. No. God says, no. That's a pretty good looking young man. No. That's a pretty good. No. And then God says this in 1 Samuel 16, 7 to 13. Says, so Samuel took the horn. Oh, sorry, but the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, brothers and sisters, for some of you, this might be a great encouragement, right? Is that right? I got a, I got a shot at this, right? I'm neither tall nor good looking. I'm neither. And you think to yourself, I don't have any of the qualifications. But fortunately, where's God looking? To the heart. It is character that is the heart of good leadership. And so our world is so obsessed on superficialities, isn't it? Let us have the prettiest leader that we can, whatever it is. We, we, we just get obsessed on the veneer. And God says, I look way beyond that. And that should be both an encouragement and potentially a rebuke. Yeah? Because some of us know what it is to get the outside right and be compromised on the inside. God says, I'm looking inside. And I have found someone. In fact, he's out. Have you got one more son? Oh, yep. He's out looking after the sheep. Well, call your your sheep boy in. And when he comes in, God says, that's my chosen one. The shepherd boy is my chosen one. And so Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David, and Samuel went to Ramah. So now we've got a really awkward situation in Israel. Saul is still the king, and David has been anointed as the king in waiting. That causes a world of tension that is unpacked um, in the the remainder of of, uh, Samuel. So David is the king in waiting. Eventually, he becomes the king. And do you know how he becomes the king? He doesn't have a coup. He doesn't remove the Lord's anointed. He waits so patiently, so faithfully for God's timing. And then both um, 
Saul and his son, Jonathan, die in battle. And David is appointed to be the king over Israel. We find in 2 Samuel chapter 5, David was 30 years old when he became king. And he reigned for 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, you will not get in here, dot, dot, dot. Nevertheless, King David captured fortress, the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. And you think to yourself, great, why, why do I need to have that piece of information? Well, here's the thing. Have you heard of Jerusalem? Pretty important, right? Here's the thing to note. It wasn't the capital of Israel when David became king. It was occupied by foreigners. Who would have thought, right? And so there it is in the middle of the land, and it's a little holdout against God's holy plan to occupy the land. And so David goes, I want that place. It's the hardest, the, easy, the hardest place to break into, the best place to defend. I want that to be my capital city. And so he chose Canberra. Well, we have a flat inland bit that you know, water runs into occasionally, I think. But, but, but here's the thing. It's like Canberra. It's choosing a city that isn't with the heritage of anyone else. It says, that new place, that's where my capital is going to be. And so David captures Jerusalem and makes it his capital and the place where God will dwell. Then we come to an incredible moment in David's life. He's in Jerusalem. And God makes a covenant with him. We'd seen a covenant to Abraham. We'd seen a covenant with Noah. And now there's an incredible covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7. And you guys remember what we're supposed to do when we come to 2 Samuel 7, don't you? We're supposed to do this. Ah, 2 Samuel 7. Do it with me. Ah, 2 Samuel 7. Okay, right. It's a really important chapter. Okay, you need to know this. So when I say 2 Samuel 7, all of you just go, oh, yeah, yeah, 2 Samuel 7. I'm, I'm across it. For those of you who aren't across it yet, let me tell you why it's amazing. Okay? David is given a promise from God, a promise about the future, eternal, eternal future. Have a listen to these words. The Lord declares to you, that's to David, that the Lord himself will establish a house for you when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I'll raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for me. David said, I'm going to build a temple for you, God. I love you so much. And God says, you can't. You can't. I'm going to give that job to an offspring of yours, to one of your children. And that will happen. That's brilliant, right? One of your offspring will build the temple for me. That's great. But down the bottom, it says this. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So here's the thing. We're not very good at thinking about forever. Uh, if I tell you that something that you made will be around in 50 years' time, we think that's pretty good, right? If I told you that it would be around in 100 years' time, you'd go, man, I've done something remarkable. And I'll tell you how remarkable it is. Because here's the thing, most of us don't know the first name of our great-great-grandparents. Now, some of you will be able to pull it up now and you've done your family tree and power to you. But here's the thing, people who are in your family line are already forgotten. What could you do that would last? 
What if you're a king who wanted to leave a legacy? And here David is being told, one of your descendants will rule forever on your throne. It's an eternal promise. It's extraordinary, right? And that's why we stroke our chins and say, ah, 2 Samuel 7, because God promises something to David, which is truly extraordinary. It's about Solomon, but it's especially about Jesus. Well, David eventually has to hand on his reign. He'll hand it on to a man called Solomon, but it's not who you would have thought. You see, David's oldest son isn't Solomon. Did you know that? David's oldest son, in fact, organized a coup to try and kill his dad and and take over the throne. That's an awkward family lunch, isn't it? Right? And his sons are terrible. They're terrible. And so while one of his other sons is trying to arrange a coup, then David says this. And I want you to see who he says it to. I want you to see who Solomon's mum is. You ready for this? This is pretty extraordinary. In 1 Kings chapter 1. Then David said, call in Bathsheba. So David came, uh, so she came into the king's presence and stood before him. The king then took an oath. As surely as the Lord lives, who delivered me out of every trouble, I will surely carry out this very day what I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel. Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne in my place. Whose son is Solomon? Bathsheba. It's extraordinary, right? Extraordinary, the, the, the lady that he had an affair with. All of that staining on David's reputation. And it's Solomon, the young son, who inherits. It's just truly extraordinary how God's plan works. And so Solomon succeeds his father as king. Now Solomon's a young lad and he has an incredible moment with God himself. Um, do you remember the Tim Tam ad? Open the pack of the Tim Tams and a genie pops out and says, uh, three wishes, you know, the, you know the deal, three wishes and all that. Okay, maybe you don't remember that ad, but okay. Rub the, uh, rub the oil, uh, the, the lamp, Aladdin's lamp, or whatever, genie pops out. Here's what happens. David's having a dream, and God appears to him, it seems, like the Tim Tam genie. He says to him, ask for me whatever you want. Who gets that offer from God? No one, right? So what would you say if God said, I'll give you anything? Don't think too long, because it'll be, it'll be a problem for you, okay? I want you to see what, what Solomon said. This is what Solomon said in a dream. Now, Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, but I'm only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? Now, that's a good answer, isn't it? And we know it's a good answer because, have a look what it says next. The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. And then he says, do you know what? That's a great answer because it's about the heart. It's about dealing with your entrusted responsibility well. Good tip for all of us, right? God help me with my plan. So it's about the heart. And then God says, you know what? Because you didn't ask for wealth or for long life or for riches, you know what I'm going to give you? I'm going to make you wise. You're going to be the wisest man who ever lived. And I'm going to give you all the things you didn't ask for. And Solomon goes, yes, which I suspect actually means he was wise before he became wise, but that's beside the point, isn't it, right? So what an amazing man. Solomon is granted wisdom plus, and that's the W under the 
crown, if you're wondering what that was. And then Solomon is entrusted with all these riches, with all this wisdom, and he does the thing that his father longed to do, and he builds the temple. That's what this is here, the steps going up to the temple, right? Okay. When Solomon had finished building the temple of the Lord and the royal palace and achieved all that he desired to do, the Lord appeared to him a second time, as he appeared to him at Gibeon. The Lord said to him, I've heard the prayer and the plea you have made before me. I've consecrated this temple which you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. Do you want to know why the Jews in Jerusalem pray at the Temple Mount? My eyes and my heart will be there forever, right? He'd set aside a place where God would meet with his people, where he would literally dwell on earth with his people. That was what the temple was. And now it was in the midst of David's capital city, in the middle of the furthest reaches that Israel would ever reach, and there's Solomon at the very pinnacle, right? Everything's going to be brilliant from here, isn't it? God will dwell with his people. That's amazing. Let's see what happens next. Well, Solomon had a little bit of a problem. Did you know this? He was very wise, but he had another W problem. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. And his wives led him astray. Not all wives do that, but obviously 700 might. Uh, As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. So the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude, and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. And so this is what happens tragically. Solomon's faithlessness condemns his kingdom. And what happens next is we see a prophet, this guy Ahijah, chatting to a a man here. Have a listen to what happens. Ahijah took hold of the new cloak he was wearing and tore it into 12 pieces. He said to Jeroboam, just some bloke, said to Jeroboam, take 10 pieces for yourself, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. See, I'm going to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hand and give you 10 tribes. But for the sake of my servant David and the city of Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, he will have one tribe. Tragically, the kingdom of God will be split, torn in two because of the faithful faithlessness of Solomon. The kingdom of God is rent in two. The kingdom is lost as God has promised. And yet you'll see too, he's keeping his promise to David. See, the ideal was... That in Israel, there would be a prophet, a priest, and a king. This is a scroll. (laughs) This is the temple. This is the king. There would be a prophet, a priest, and a king. The prophet would speak the word of God to the king. The priest would minister the sacraments of God to the king. And the king would rule as a king under the great king. You see, there's this... There's checks and balances, the Senate with the lower house, right? Okay, But here we have the prophet and the priest, and they're supposed to keep a guard on the exercise of power that this king has. A prophet, a priest, and a king. And you know what? That's what the rest of the Bible is filled up with in the Old Testament. Prophets writing again and again to say to Israel, hey guys, you're not doing such a good job. After the initial awesome upwards, you know, Saul, crash. David, crash. Solomon, crash, and then it just falls through the floor. The people of God are faithless. And so God says to him again and again, stop sinning, turn back to me, repent, or you will lose the land. Down and down and down goes the fate of Israel in the hands of leaders who tragically will not obey or listen to his word. 
The Old Testament finishes with a hunger for a righteous son of David. Where is the one who will be the forever king? Well, Jesus helps us figure out this whole leadership thing. If Israel's leadership is a failure, we see one bright shining light. It's a man called Jesus. You might have heard of him. Yeah? We're jumping out of our Old Testament series into the new. And I want you to see how it's announced in, uh, in, Luke's, in Luke's account of, uh, of Jesus' life. Today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the promised king, the Lord. And then in John 20, verse 31, but these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that by the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. See, God did send a descendant of David. He does have an anointed descendant. It only took a thousand years. What time scale are we working with, God? Are you faithful? God, have you still got your plan together? A thousand years after he promised, God kept his promise to David. See, Jesus is the leader that we need. He's the leader that we need. When it comes to leadership, Jesus has a command for us. He says, I will wash the feet of my disciples and you should do likewise. If you want to be great, Jesus says, then serve. So the Son of God took off his outer garment, got down on his knees and washed the dirty feet of his disciples. He says, you want to know what leadership looks like? It's loving the people you serve enough to bend the knee for them. That's true leadership. So he gives us the command. And then he shows us what it means to be king by dying on the cross. He says, even the Son of God did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You want to know what real leadership looks like? It's prepared to lay down its life for those it serves. And then Jesus provides what we all need as failed leaders, the power of forgiveness to cleanse us from our failures, to cleanse us from our failures. Well, that's great. And some of you are sitting, I hope the leaders here are paying attention. What happens if I'm not a leader? <laughs> I'm no leader. I don't lead anything. I try and lead the kids. And <laughs> so some of you are thinking, I, I don't really have a leadership role. What should I do today? Well, in, uh, in in 1 Timothy chapter 2, it says, and Paul did a great job of this today, it says, first of all then, I urge that petitions, prayers, and intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. You know, guys, I've heard it said that we have the leaders that we pray for. So congratulations, you got what you deserved. Is that right? It's really interesting, you know, as Australians, our default mode is cynicism, yes? And as Christians, I don't know that we're too far further from that. I don't know that we're marked differently from our world around us. So my question would be, when was the last time you prayed for our Prime Minister? For our council? For the principal in your school? For your boss at work? Lifting them up to God instead of cynically cutting them down or disbelieving them should be the work of faith, yeah? We know that they're flawed. We don't believe in perfection because we believe in sin. So will we lift them up and ask in God's mercy that he might help them to be the leaders we long for them to be? Pray for me and all my perfection and failure as well. Pray for your leaders. 
You see, at the end of the day, we're all imperfect leaders and we all need, I think, these three things. We need a prophet, we need a priest, and we need a king. We need to have these around us. And if you are leading today, I want to say to you, you need to have the prophet. Well, I can't give you one straight away, but here's one that will speak the word of God to you. (laughs) Do you have the word of God inside your leadership paradigm? Is this word rebuking, encouraging, correcting, pushing you to be the leader God wants you to be? Do you let the word of God shape your leadership? We need a priest. We need to know that in in Jesus Christ, you can be forgiven of your failures as a leader. We need to know the love of God. And thirdly, we need to know that the real leadership lies with God and not you. It'll make us humble. It'll put us on our knees when our burdens of leadership overwhelm us because we will come to the one who is truly in charge, who is not us, but the Lord Jesus. Today, I want to encourage you to find your story in the story that is laid out for us in the Bible. It's a story of failure, but it's also a story of hope for failure because we have in Jesus the perfect leader. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his perfection, for his obedience. We thank you, Father, for your patience in fulfilling your promise to uh, to David that your son came and died and rose again and sits at your right hand in glory where he has all authority and power and dominion. Heavenly Father, we pray that we might lead and serve in ways that bring honour and glory to your son. For we ask it in his name. Amen.